When I was reading the stories, they all do mention this place, and I started to become to think of it as a laboratory um, for your work. How does that sort of label sit with you? I like it. <laughs> I like it. it. I mean, it is a place where I can, I think we're more of a sandbox um, than, than a laboratory, but a laboratory works. You're listening to WERALP 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. This is Real Fiction, a place for novelists, poets, and journalists. We talk to authors about their new book releases, the people and events that inspired the story. My guest today is Rian Amilkar-Scott. His new book is The World Doesn't Require You a collection of stories that takes us into the mythical world of Cross River, Maryland. He has also just published a story in the New Yorker magazine titled Shape Ups at Delilah's. His first book, Insurrections, won the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for debut fiction. One review called The World Doesn't Require You, a deeply immersive, slightly disorienting experience, and a genre-bending whirlwind of a book. Here to talk about this book is Rian Amilkar-Scott. Rian, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. First question, what can you tell us about the fictional town of Cross River, Maryland that features in your stories? Okay, well, Cross River was founded in 1807, exactly 100 years before my grandmother's birth, after a successful slave revolt. So in this country, there had been no successful slave revolts. Um, and uh, both in the in the world of my fiction and in the real world, it was inspired by the, the Haitian Revolution, which was which was successful. It was, you know, the only successful slave revolt in the hemisphere and it inspired in real life and inspired a lot of uh, slave revolts, uh, which were, were not successful in this country. But in the world of my fiction, there was a successful slave revolt. In the world of your fiction, there is a successful slave revolt. And... Let's talk about what Cross River is not. Is not designed to be a utopia or a dystopia as it features in your stories. No, it's neither. (laughs) It's neither. It's uh, just a place where people are trying to live up to this history. When I was reading the stories, uh, struck by the tenor and tone, it changes. Some of them feel a little bit science fiction. Some of them feel a little bit surreal. But they all do mention this place. And I started to come become to think of it as a laboratory mm. um, for your work. How does that sort of label sit with you? I like it. <laughs> I like it. I mean, it is a place where I can, I think we're more of a sandbox um, than, than a laboratory, but a laboratory works as well. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a place where I can, I can play uh, and I can, you know, I can, you know, bring in elements that I've used before, bring in new elements, elements I've been thinking about and just, you know, put them all together and mix in in a pot. Yeah. It, it does feel like a rich stew when you're reading it. And back to that um, that review that I mentioned in the introduction, it can be a little bit disorienting. Is and and you 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 like that? You like kind of mixing I do. up. I like messing with people's heads. Fable and myth and reality. I it was almost like a molecular gastronomy sort of <laughs> feast. Um, I think I know what I'm eating, and then a few seconds later, the taste changes dramatically. What came first to you? Was it this vision of the Haitian slave result, uh, revolt, or was it an individual voice? 
whenever I'm writing a story, I'm usually thinking of the character first. Think of the character, and I'm you know you know put them in put them in the place and put them together, and then see what happens. Your first book was also a collection of stories. It was called Insurrections, which we mentioned. The same same kind of creative process. Same town, yeah. Same, same town. Same, same creative process, yeah. In that creative process, the only thing that was different was that I just wasn't as familiar with with the town. But at the same time, a lot of stories that are in the world doesn't require you were written at the same time or before the stories that were in uh, insurrection. Oh, is that right? Initially written, yeah. Drafted. At okay. The same time. Well, that that actually brings up a question um, from an editorial process and from a pitching process. How 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 did you pitch this to an agent or a publisher? So you know, when I first submitted it to to University Press, you know, I didn't I didn't really have an agent or anything like that. Is you know, I saw that they had a uh, I had a contest that the call for the submissions sounded sounded exactly like my work, you know. So I, so I submitted it out there, and I had a uh, an editor who who really championed it and believed in it. And you know, told me which stories you thought should be cut, which stories you know could be added, and and how to and how to make it how to make it better. Um, when it came to uh, to moving on and, and and submitting, the world doesn't require you. Uh, I had I had a lot of stories that I, that were in the back of my mind, like the David Sherman, the Last Son of God. I I didn't think that would fit into insurrections. I thought that would sort of overwhelm the rest of the story, and I knew that it would, that was a first story. You know, that, and let's yeah, let's let's hover there for a second. That's the first story, right? That's the in, first story in the book, mm-hmm. in the new book. You had written that prior to the first book, but you felt it didn't fit, right? That oh, I, I, I I'd written that was the first story that I wrote after I graduated from George Mason, and when I wrote that, um, you know, I spent I spent three years at George Mason learning the craft, and and I there were a lot of uh, a, a lot of things that were um, I should say I was trying to figure things out and, and following. Not necessarily rules, but following, you know, craft steps, and it was, uh, and it was sort of, you know, it was sort of like, you know, you're learning dance steps, and you, you're thinking one, two, three, four. So uh, when when I got out of George Mason, I said I wanted I wanted to go in a different direction and try to write something that was that was slightly different, and that, and that's how David Sherman came about. When you were workshopping these stories, George Mason, and and just in your kind of private collection of of authors and literary reviewers. What was the first reaction? Did you get did you get a lot of pushback from people that said this is this is too kind of unconventional? How are you going to? No, I got a lot of encouragement. Uh, you know, go you know keep going in this direction. You know, I think in some of the stories in my first book, they were uh, a lot of those were workshopped and they were more or less I wouldn't say more or less conventional, but they were more conventional. I found people were were interested in in what I was doing. And you're teaching, if I'm not mistaken. I do. I teach in University of Maryland. How do you encourage your students to think really broadly or in an experimental fashion about writing? If they come into you with something that's sort of something you've seen a lot, do you mm-hmm. do you have a discussion with them and say let's let's push the boundaries a bit? It's about putting books in front of them and saying read this, and you know if I see something in their work and I say well you know. So and so is doing a, a similar thing that you're doing. You know, they're, they're doing it in, in a more robust fashion right now. Maybe you should read that, and hopefully that you know, hopefully that helps them unfold. For, you know, in in the and go in the direction that they they want to go. But really, I don't. I, I'm not about pushing students in one direction or another. It's about you know, it's about thinking about what are they trying to do here, uh, and and trying to make them be more themselves. You're kind of guiding them toward the genre where you feel they might fit the best. Well, where they feel they fit the best. Where they feel they fit the best. 
Well, let me turn just a bit back to the um, short story you wrote in the New York New Yorker magazine. And for anyone listening, it is in the October 7th issue of the New Yorker. Title is Shape Ups at Delilah's. And I did want to spend a bit of time on this because um, I felt that there'll be some listeners with this magazine sitting around and it's a really superb um, kind of entree into into your world. And I mentioned when I was reading this, Cross River came up. And I thought, wait a minute, um, this was in uh, the, you know, the big book, The World <laughs> Doesn't Require You. Let me let me back up here, because then it was at that point I realized that the setting is um, so instrumental in the story. And I mentioned, I think of this as kind of a literary experiment, a laboratory, uh, as you called it, it's a sandbox. When did you write Shape Ups at Delilah's? And did you write it before your book? Shape of the Delilah's was written, it wasn't written before the book. Um, it was actually, initially when I turned in the, the first draft of the book, it was in the book. So I wrote it a- along with some of the, some of the newer stories in, in, in The World Doesn't Require You. I just couldn't get it to work. <laughs> when I, by the time I had to turn in the book, it just, uh, there was just something about it that I couldn't figure out. So I knew it needed a little bit of time. So I pulled it out of the book. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's kind of dive into this one. The story centers around a woman named Tiny who becomes a barber, which is very much a man's world. Mm-hmm. And it this occurs when there is a hair crisis occurring in Cross River. And then at one point, religious protesters start referring to her as Delilah. And then I realized, okay, we might have a kind of biblical reference going on here. Mm-hmm. So I, I read the story. I reread the you know, I read the biblical passages that had to do with Samson and Delilah, and it seems like you have kind of flipped this biblical story. It's, it's a, it is a flipped well, biblical story. It's a flipped yeah. biblical story. Okay, uh-huh. tell us about how you came up with this and how you worked your way through this story. Well, this story is somewhat of a sequel. In the in the first first book, Insurrections, there is a uh, a story called Razor Bumps, in which uh, it's one of the, one of the last stories in the book, in which a uh, a barber named Sonny, who who, who makes is mentioned in Shape Ups of Delilah's. Uh, just loses his skills. He's the greatest barber in Cross River history, and and for some reason he can't cut anymore, and and no one in Cross River can cut anymore, and that's the the great hair crisis, and and so I wanted to uh, wanted to flip it a little bit. I, I remember growing up, and you know the the male the black barber shop is very is is often a, a, a male dominated space, and you know it it it's I wouldn't say it's necessarily hostile uh, to women. That, that would be inaccurate, but it's a uh, it's, it's very much a male dominated space, and I and I wanted to think about thinking about her you know her 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 role and how she uh you know how she held the floor in that space and, and her strength to, to, to be in that in that male-dominated space and i thought of the start the story of samson and delilah which which is often which was growing up was often referenced if, if you if, if somebody was thinking about getting their hair cut by a woman like no you're gonna lose your strength and so i i wanted to, to turn that from a you know sexist story to, i wouldn't say a necessarily empowering story but that that featured the you know the strength of this uh, of this woman tiny she has the power to to end the hair crisis and and you know it's hinted that she does end it but the town won't let her simply because she's a woman well it it's it's kind of uh, amazing because in the story of samson and delilah samson is fearful that he will lose his power mm-hmm. if his hair is cut and in your story the customers are seeking cuts that kind of give them a certain look give them a powerful identity mm-hmm so what were you thinking about in terms of identity or 
the style of a haircut being kind of, <laughs> you know, kind of integral to a person's persona. You know, when you go to the barbershop, it's a very intimate um, relationship where you have, you know, someone who's, you know, they're they're up close with you with uh, with sharp tools, and <laughs> and you're allowing them to, <laughs> you're allowing them to assault you basically, and um and then afterwards, uh, you know, you walk out there and your your hair is glittering, you know, for for a little while, you know, you feel powerful, <laughs> at least in the black barbershop world, you feel powerful, and um. And these hairstyles were things we, you know, we would talk about and we would discuss growing up. You know, you know, yeah, so your hair got really messed up, or dang, look at that, look at that, look at that shape up. It looks good. It looks great. You know? Yeah, that's that's the power of this story. It really showcases the intimacy between the barber and the person sitting in that chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and I encourage everyone to read that story because it's um, an excellent example of what you're getting yourself into when you dive into one of Rian's books. And I mentioned earlier that many of the stories um, were published in literary magazines. Yes. So effectively, they can stand alone. Is that your feeling? I think so. I hope so. Yeah. Okay. I started reading your book, and then the um, the New Yorker piece came out, and then I backed up. And realized that I needed to look at this a bit differently. I have re- so I'm essentially reading your work backwards because I'll go to insurrections next. How do you feel about readers taking a circuitous path through your work? I think that's fine. There's uh, you know these stories they they don't take place chronologically. Um, you know, there, there's stories in here that go go back into the to 1919. There's stories that uh, that may be futuristic. Um, you know, a lot of people say they're futuristic, but there's no, <laughs> there really is no time and date in the robot stories. There's stories with robots in them. And there, you know, I don't I don't think that there's any particular order that you have to read the the, the stories. If you, if you <laughs> it, and it depends on what you're reading for. Uh, hopefully, in the future, I have. Ten or more books, and 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 you, and you can uh, choose to read them any way you want. If you want to read them to look at the writer's development, you know, re- read them chronologically. If you want to, you know, and and there are probably many different ways. And that's what I do with a lot of authors' books. You know, if I want, to, if I'm trying to look at how they develop, I'll read it in the way that they they wrote it. Um, if I'm if I'm trying to look for their best, I might look at their the the most critically acclaimed books and read them in in order from the best, most critically acclaimed to least. So any way you want to read it is, is, is correct. That's a really interesting point. And what writers are you reading today? And, and maybe another way to ask that is, what authors have influenced your work? I mean, I, 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 don't, know, I don't know who I'd be without, without having discovered August Wilson. And I, was just, I, I, just, I just saw um, Radio Golf, which was his last play. I just, I just uh, saw it, and that was the first August Wilson play that I saw. My wife and I just saw it again. And... When I saw it that that so many years ago, uh, I was just, we just happened to be driving by the theater and it was just like, oh, well, let's go see a play, and uh, and it was on a whim, and it turned out to be something that that uh, that changed my writing and changed my life. And I'm often reading his work, his this ten play cycle, uh, and I'm often reading in in different orders. What is it about August Wilson's work that you find so engaging? He really took the poetry out of out of black speech. I see a lot of people say, oh, you know, his, his, the language is so realistic, and, and I, I can't, I, I don't see how anyone could say that language is realistic. I don't know anyone that speaks that that poetically. It, it's sort of the essence uh, of, of the language that that he has he has he's managed to pull out the essence and, and put it right there on the page. Well, that's fascinating, and I hadn't really planned on asking you this, but 
reviews have said the same thing about your work. And I stole it from all these wills. <laughs> I would say you were impressively influenced in a very good way. If if that was one of your influences, there are there, there's some some language in the book that would be difficult to re, you know say on the radio and, uh-huh. and even in print. When I was reading it, I never felt that it was uh, inappropriate in any way. I, you do it in such you use words that are not that we need to be very careful with today, but you, uh-huh. you do it in a very instructive way. How did you navigate that minefield? Yeah. <laughs> thinking thinking of my mother, um, who, who, you know, when she read my first book, she's, she's gone now, but uh, when she read my first book, she asked me, like, well, I, you know, I, I like this, but why do you have to cuss so much? <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I think words are, words are tools, and they have to be deployed properly, um, you know, and, you know, it, it's, I think, you know, that's why, why we don't... Uh, we don't we don't we don't enjoy hearing children curse because they don't know how to use these these words that are uh, are heavily heavily charged you know so it's like watching them walking around with a hammer because it's, it's da- it can be dangerous so you so you you pull those tools back for them until they're old enough and to figure out how to use them sometimes there's there's profanity and you know hopefully I'm deploying it in 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 such a way that's, that I'm being careful sometimes there's the there's the n word um and I'm using it as a as a tool and there's always going to be this debate about the n word I'm having the debate on the page in a way that hopefully is is uh, uh is, is enlightening and entertaining let's talk about that there is a story with the n word in the title um two of them two of them that's that is correct and it's used to kind of demonstrate uh, a communication tool that was used in times of slavery. <laughs> knock, knock jokes. And I found it incredibly enlightening and um, informative. So <laughs> I, did uh, that I, particular story start out kind of like rough and then you smoothed it out? Or walk us through that story. I want you to be careful about being informed by that story because you know I that, see that's what I warned everyone. You think you're in a world? And I, you know, okay, I, I'm, I'm glad a, I asked. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a writer who uses his imagination. That's what I should say. Okay. And, uh, okay. And then the knock knock joke, uh, to my knowledge, does not have the history that is presented in the book. Okay. Um, but it's a cultural. You're you're kind of playing with the cultural stories, cultural oral stories. That the, you've the, heard. the title is N word knockers, and you know the N word is spelled out in the title. And when I was a kid, we we used to do this. We used to knock on people's doors and run away, and then you know it, we used to call it that, and, and and we never questioned it. You know, we never thought about where did, where did this come from. That was language that you used. Yeah, we used to say, "Hey, you want to go inward knocking? Yeah, let's go, let's go inward," and we would go and and do it. No one ever said. Why are we calling it that? What does that even mean? So later, as I as I as I grew older, I, I went online and I, and I looked it up, and it wasn't you know it wasn't just me and my friends. You know, it's 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 a thing that people call it this, and, and I couldn't find the history. I couldn't find the etymology of it, so I, I decided to make up my own history <laughs> for it. I I asked you um, earlier before we started recording about your name, Rian Amilcar Scott, and it has a very um, interesting history. Your parents thought very carefully about naming you. Can mm-hmm. you give us a little bit of history about your about your name? Well, my, my middle name was named after a leader, a revolutionary and uh, from Guinea-Bissau, uh, Amilcar Cabral. Uh, and, you know, I, <laughs> names, names, uh, Names are important, I think. Um, you know, as, as as a fiction writer um, and, and and as a person, I think my my name has 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 defined me. Um, and uh, you know, I, you know, I, I think that 
since my parents thought so carefully um about about my name i tried to uh think carefully about what i'm putting into putting into my work and what i'm what i'm putting out there and you are a father of two I am, small yes. children and uh-huh. And they have very unique names, too. I'm very proud of their names. <laughs> so you, um, well, you have, you're following the family tradition of putting a lot of well, good, good thought into their... Well, your name your name defines you. It's a, it, it, your, name, your name really does define you. My father always used to point out that my, my initials spell Ras, which means king. And uh, you know, there's a you know, <laughs> there's a there's a leader in my middle name and a, and a, and a leader in my, my initials. Um, so, you know, it's... Uh, you know, as as a kid, feeling you know, when I'm feeling my lowest, I could I could think about that. You I know? I think that's marvelous. And since we're talking about your parents and their thoughtfulness and naming, and you're doing the same with your children, how are you introducing your children to literature? What what are they drawn to, and what are you trying to introduce to them as young? readers. I just give them books I want them to read sort of indiscriminately and voraciously and my, my, my oldest he does that. Um, you know, we just finished reading uh, uh, Jason Reynolds Look Both Ways and uh, it was such a great experience reading it we reading it together. Uh, it's, a, it's a very beautiful book and uh, we laughed our heads off and then and, um, you know, I got him another Jason Reynolds book which I haven't read yet uh, called Ghosts and he loved it. You know, it's just about putting books in their hands and seeing them, seeing their eyes light up. And uh, I, was, I was very disappointed. I gave him a Choose Your Own Adventure book, and he didn't seem to take to it. I used to love Choose Your Own Adventure books <laughs> as, as, as a kid. So um, my youngest, he's going on two right now. Yeah, we read to him constantly, and he's always bringing books. He's very excited about Sesame Street characters right now, which which I, I'm always excited about Muppets. So I'm, I'm happy that he's so excited that, about that. That tracks well with you. Right. <laughs> Is your oldest at the point where he's starting to write yet? He's always writing. Yeah, he always has has some stories that he's that he's writing. Um, he's writing comic books. He's characters that he's he's one character that he's had for for as long as he's about three years old and two or three. He had a character named Alien Everything. He's constantly still talking about Alien Everything. He's he's he's, uh, he's nine now. You might have another writer in the family. Hey, maybe. <laughs> I am loving this discussion. I want to switch back to um, the the book. I'll remind everyone we're speaking with Rian Amilcar Scott. His new book is The World Doesn't Require You. The stories range in length from quite a few pages to a couple of pages, and then it builds to this novella at the end, which is um, your longest work to date, as I have read. So I'm curious, is this piece, the novella at the end of the book, does this signaling a, a shift for you? Are you looking to do maybe a full-length novel next time, or do you like working in the space of short stories? I'm working on a novel, but yeah, I, I love the short story form. You know, I'm still still thinking about that, and sometimes I'm I'm working on this novel, but um, I'm cheating on it with uh with, with short stories. But, you know, I think one of the reasons why I wrote this, wrote the novella, was yeah, it was practice, and I, I wanted to to practice just the long form before I really really dove in. I mean, I've you know, this is not the first long long thing I've written. You know, it's just the first long thing that's successful. You know, I've written <laughs> written written novels before that just oh, did, you have no, you have novels in the in the desk, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, um, in the desk, and pieces of that were carved up and in, 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 in appear in both of my books. So, yeah, so so I think that I'm, I'm working on something right now, and everything I write is always going to take place in Cross River or have some sort of connection to, to Cross River. You anticipated one of my questions. <laughs> the work you're doing now, mm-hmm. we're still in that world. We're still we're, in that sandbox. We're still in Cross River, yeah. Okay. 
feel like my my work is to is to tell the story of this town. The town is my recurring character. The town is my main character. I call it the Cross River Saga, and I'm you know success to me <laughs> is finishing the Cross River Saga. You know, and and everything else is geared towards that. Being able to have the time and space to to beat the Reaper um, and finish this book. I do have a question, and I'm really interested in what you might say because you teach. Is there a book that you like to recommend that perhaps no one has ever heard of? There's a book that one book that I think about a lot um, is a book by Renee Sims called Meet Meet Behind Mars. Meet Uh, Behind Mars. Right, it's a short story collection. Um, that is, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say no one's heard of it. You know, people have heard of it, but it's it's uh, a work that maybe deserves uh, to be read I think more widely. De- I think it deserves to be read widely. You know, it's uh, it's funny. It's uh, it's um, it, it's it's really smart, and and I and I think about it a lot. You know, um, it's uh, um, you know, there's one story in there, you know, that that sort of anticipates a lot of of what parenting, you know, black parenting is is like. That is a great suggestion. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming. Our guest today is Rian uh, Milkar Scott. And you can find more about Rian on his website. Do I have this right? It's rianamilkarscott.com. Yes. Okay, so we can track your events and your next book. Um, Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening. We're on Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7 FM streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find us at realfictionradio.com.